Okay, let's go. Hi, my name is Michael Waits, and this is ATP Stories, and I am with Tim Romero. I think it would take longer to introduce you than just to say hello. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, you've been at this a long time. If nothing else, just like talking to people and being someone that people want to talk to. There's, so, I mean, I said this to you before we started recording, but I'm actually shocked that you and I have never met each other in person. And I would actually venture to guess that in at some point in time, you and I have been standing less than 100 yards away from each other. I have. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I have no doubt we've been in the room, at, been in the same room at the same time at some point. But you I'm not that, sure right? when exactly that would be. No, but I mean, so where did you? Which which major financial services company did you work at? Zurich. Um, right? I worked at Zurich Financial here. Yeah. Right. And so, where is their office? Well, they they've moved since I I worked there, but I worked in their Tokyo office. Right. But where where exactly was it? Because I lived in Tokyo, so I'm just curious. And I worked, you know, anywhere from. Akasaka to Roppongi to, you know, Otemachi all over the place. Marunuchi. I'm just curious where your office was. It was in, um, oh damn, it's embarrassing. I can't remember the name of the, the station. <laughs> but it was right in front of Keio Hospital. Ah, and Shinanomachi. It, and that strange, yes, that's it, Shinanomachi. And that strange red brick building with the giant arch in front of it. Oh, wow. Really? Did yeah. you live? Did you live over there? I was going to ask you. No, at that time I was living in Ebisu. Okay. Yeah, so I've worked in Ebisu as well when I was at Morgan Stanley. Ah, right, right. Garden Place. Ebisu is a great place. I loved it. And, you know, to be fair, when we moved there, what was it, 1990? God, I don't remember. Four, maybe? <laughs> oh, wow. So before the station, before uh, yeah. Yeah, Garden yeah. Place so, even went up? No, oh. no, no. So maybe I have the year wrong, but with, like we were one of the first tenants in Garden Place. Oh, okay, okay. So we went there and like built the trading floor and tried to break phones and all that other stuff that traders are meant to do. I don't think I ever actually broke a phone, to be fair. Excellent. So so one of the things that I was noticed when I read through your biography was that I don't remember you actually ever learning Japanese, but you got sent to Japan. I'm just trying to, like, if you could just go through the timeline with me just so I can be clear on it. Okay, sure. Um, I, I first came to Japan when I was in college, just on kind of a lark. It was a series of coincidences. I ended up staying here, just visiting for a few months. Um, I was um, at that time an aspiring professional musician, I suppose, and I ended up playing with a number of bands. I ended up signed to a record contract here in Japan. And so after I graduated college, I came to Japan to play music. And I did that for a few years. Then um, my music career wasn't really going anywhere in Tokyo. Uh, yeah, it's to be expected. Most don't. Fair enough. And, I mean, it's a hard business, right? Oh, it is. It is. I had a whole lot of fun, but didn't make much money. <laughs> and um, moved back to L.A. for a couple of years. And then I was working with a trading company in L.A. who sent me back to Japan. But Japanese, I've never – I've had a couple of teachers over the years, but I've never really studied it formally. Okay, that's what I really wanted to know because I'd noticed you just said they sent me back to Japan. And was that back to Japan only because you had been there playing music? Like that was their thing. Like you'd lived in Tokyo or lived in Japan and they were like, okay, that guy's been in Tokyo before. Send him over. Or did you raise your hand and ask for it? A little of both. A little, a little of both. both. It was. Uh, I was doing a lot of uh, technical work for them in their LA office, but most of their staff was in Tokyo, and there were some. You know, would you want to come back to Tokyo and do this here? Or and it, it just made sense. And how long did it take you to say yes? 
Oh, well, God, <laughs> about a year. Uh, I mean, a year since the day I started working for that company to the, the day they transferred me over here. So it was pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, they, so, didn't, they didn't have to twist my arm too hard. That's kind of what I wanted to know. I mean, so I studied, I don't know if you know this program. I went to a Connecticut college and I actually did the AKP program. So the Associated Kyoto program. So my, you know, I did a homestay in Kyoto. And when I got back to New York, all I really wanted to do was get a job in Tokyo. <laughs> like that was it. Because I had already spoken, and you know what this is like, right? You don't know the language until you actually live in the country full time. Like, oh, yeah. Like, so you do a bilingual blog now, right? Well, even that, the, the blog has kind of fallen away because Disrupting Japan has really blown up and takes way more time than I'd, I'd like it to. But even – so I, I – the bilingual blog, I would write in English and have it translated in Japanese. Got it. Um, and I write for a number of Japanese publications as well, and it's always the same way. I'll write it in English and they'll translate it into Japanese because I, I can read Japanese, but it's – I can't – it takes me way too long to write. Got it. So what else, who, who else do you write for? Uh, let's see, I've written, right now I write for Fujisanke Business Eye. Wow. Uh, I've written for Atmark IT. Um, who else? Uh, a number of publications over the years, but those two most recently. And what is, so what is your specialty? In other words, when, when I ask you to write articles or when you're think, sitting around thinking about what to write, like what do, you, what do you consider your specialty to be? Well, actually, usually I'm, I'm pitching them. So the Fujisanke Business Eye is a bit of an unusual case because they approached me and said that we want to make they want to make a column out of disrupting Japan and a, a series on interviews um, with Japanese startups and startup founders. But before then, I would usually pitch it, the articles were always on the effect of technology on society. So it wasn't about technology or about products themselves, but it would be about how technology is changing society. Wow. that's and, and you're writing it from a foreigner in Japan perspective or just from a sort of long-term resident of Japan perspective or just from a Japan perspective, like what you see around you? Well, actually, it's what – yeah, what I see around me, but it's uh, – the stuff I write for the Japanese papers and magazines are more global in nature – uh, more overreaching, you know, more, more overarching because there are other writers in Japan that specialize in, you know, Japanese industry. So how long so is it? Yeah. So I'm just curious. No. So how long has it been since you've been involved in the startup world? And I kind of want to make a cutoff between 2011 and prior and 2011 and after, because I think it's a, it's a good demarcation point, particularly for me. Um, I guess the last time I raised funding was... 2008, 2007. I'm not sure exactly. Around then, that's a long time. Uh, I had it. Yeah, it was. I had another company that uh, last year, where I'd put together, I'd raised the funding. I'd, I, I mean, it had handshake commitments, term sheets for the funding. I had a team that was ready to go, but I, I pulled the pulled the plug about two weeks before it was all supposed to take off. Why? What happened? Um. During our private beta, we discovered a critical flaw in our business plan. Wow. Uh, well, it, it was really the product. It, it was fundamentally the product itself we were trying to sell as a shadow IT strategy. It was a B2B contract management software. The idea is we could get individuals within the company using it free. And when we had enough users, we could upsell the company on uh, you know, site licenses and management tools. So go-to-market, very similar to something like Dropbox. 
Um, we found out during our beta testing that no matter how much people said they loved the system and said they wanted to use the system, they weren't really using it. Hmm. Um, and the reason, I mean, it's complex, but what I think it came down to was the fact that the benefits to using the system were long-term. They accrued over months or years. Right. So there was no immediate benefit, so people didn't really use it. So right. that works fine for a top-down strategy where you've got some CIO saying this is this is the right course for the company. We'll save this many dollars and make it so. But from bottom up, it just wasn't working. And uh, we spent a, a good month brainstorming to figure out how to solve that, and we, we couldn't. So I, I pulled the plug. I actually wrote an article about that um, you know, last year after I shut it down called uh, – why I turned down 500K, pissed off my investors, and shut down my startup or something like that. <laughs> and how, how how pissed off were people, really? Well, it, it's a funny I title, but I'm disappointed, curious. Really. Yeah, I, I think it was more disappointed than pissed off. There, there was only, um, of all the stakeholders, there were only two that I think were genuinely angry at first. Um, the rest... I, I think we're just disappointed because they, they put so much of their own effort into it and right. they felt like I was just saying, well, I'm going to take my ball and go home now. Huh. And I mean, I, I even said, look, if you guys want to run it, you can do it without me. I'll give you the code. And But for a lot of reasons, that wasn't going to work. And uh, But after about a week, two weeks, everyone kind of came around and said, yeah, that was that was the right call because we really we didn't have a solution to this problem. Yeah, I mean, this top-down versus bottom-up is actually really interesting, right? This has been one of the major paradigm changes in the way software has been rolled out to, you know, institutions both large and small. You probably saw this when you were at Zurich, right? I definitely saw this when I was in Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Somebody, you know, the CTO or the CIO, depending on what they were called, would make a decision. And whether that was a Microsoft product or, you know, an Adobe product, it was just like, here's the new Windows thing, here's the new Office thing, just start using it. Yeah, whether you wanted to or not, right? And, you know, you couldn't even, even after the internet, you couldn't, at least after the beginning, you couldn't really download stuff onto your own um, computer. And they actually restricted access for us to floppy drives and other drives, right? So we couldn't even take some stuff from outside and put it on. And obviously all that stuff was logged anyway after Windows NT. But now that it's bottom up, things like Slack start to get used in the enterprise by people. And then everybody starts, to be. and then they start charging, right? Yes. But see, the incremental cost of selling a piece of, you know, the incremental cost of the next piece of software, you right. know, plus one is is nothing, basically. No, no. Yeah. So cloud gives us a wonderful opportunity to say, okay, well, we're just going to sell this for free. And then, you know, when you go into the site license. So, I mean, if you're selling a $40,000 software package to an enter- an enterprise class client, you're really selling like $2,000 worth of software, $5,000 worth of consulting, and you know whatever's left at $42,000 worth of sales meetings and the, right. the cost of sales. Right. And the cloud gave us a wonderful way just to end run around that cost of sales because you could go in and say, well, your, your, your staff's already using this and they're really happy with it. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for years, that was the Oracle model as well, right? Get the software in regardless and then just have a service contract for the lifetime of the use of that uh, software. 
Yeah. So do yeah. you do you still go out and try to do your own startups now? Like, do you look for market gaps in? I presume you're looking at just opportunities in Japan. Yeah, I mean, technically, I mean, I, I'm happy to look at opportunities anywhere, but just the ones that come across my desk are all in Japan. Um, right now, I'm spending most of my time working with uh, TEPCO, Tokyo Electric, on uh, energy projects. And a lot of that is looking at market breaks or market inefficiencies here in the energy markets and seeing what's successful overseas and what has to be done to make that work in Japan. So are you working on the, I mean, the FIT program is old, right? So the fee and tariff program on the solar side, but there are a lot of other ways you can use sort of alternative energy sources and renewable energy sources. Is that some of the stuff that you're focusing on as well? It's a little bit of that. It's a, most of it's a lot more specific. So it'll be things like um, demand response, um, um, some like some of the services that can be rolled into smart meters, um, the... Yeah, we're we're working with a lot of like community solar programs, virtual microgrids, things like that. Got it. So yeah. the the feed in tariffs are set yeah. at a, a government level. Yes. So it's and they've come couple, down quite a bit actually in the last five years. Yeah. Well, they're starting to, and uh, to be honest, I think the government set them way too high, <laughs> and it kind of distorted the market, and quite it brought bit. on a whole lot of of solar. But um, the feed in tariffs are are starting to drop now, so they're going to become. Uh, a little more reasonable, and it'll open it up to other competition. Yeah, which is not not necessarily a bad idea. Do you work with Jeffrey Char at all? I do. I do. We're we're in the same group, as a matter of fact, at TEPCO. Okay, that's what I thought, because Jeffrey has indicated to me that he's doing some stuff in the energy space, so it sounded exactly like the kind of stuff you're yeah. doing. And outside of that, most of what I'm working with is uh, foreign startups that are entering the Japanese market. So can you talk to me a little bit about a little bit more in detail about what disrupt Japan is? Right? Disrupting I mean, Japan? Yeah, disrupting Japan. I mean, I know it from the podcast obviously and I think that's how most people sort of outside Japan potentially know it. But you just run me through a little bit about like a little more detail like exactly what it is and how it works. Well, sure. It's um it, it's a podcast I started a little more than 3 years ago and it started out with me just inter interviewing my friends who have started companies here in Japan. Um, and I never thought it would have more than 40 or 50 people you know, <laughs> 40 listening. 40 people listening or 40 or 50 people to interview, you mean? 40 or 50 people listening. I thought it was way <laughs> too much of a niche show. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, I, again, I think there's over the last three years, there's been a tremendous increase in the interest in Japanese startups. And there is just such fascinating stuff going on in the market. So once once I got started, um, actually my first month, I had 44 listeners the entire month. <laughs> but, you know, every month after that, there's a few hundred more listeners and a few hundred more listeners. And, um, you know, so now there's, you know, thousands of listeners all over, all over the world. Um, and we do it every other week. Every and other it's... Week, yeah. Every other week. I did it every week for a while. Um, was doing it technically professionally. That's how I was making most of my money. I had a full ad load and uh, did that for about nine months. And it got to the point where I was spending 70% of my time selling ads and doing reporting and, you know, pitching ads and 30% of my time actually talking to founders and doing podcast stuff. And I just wasn't enjoying it. So I went back to biweekly and, uh, and let my sponsors sort of go away by attrition right 
they just decided they weren't interested. They were as less interested as you, than you were, basically, because you just it wasn't worth selling it. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, mean it was, but you just would buy for it, yeah. for three months or six months, and they may renew them, and they, they may re- they may not. So what, um, what what was it like? What happened over the past three years or five years that created? And I hate to use this word, but that like just changed the game. Like, the, what was the tipping point that said we're going to get really interested in startups in Japan? I mean, I have my own view, right? On I think to like. an extent, I, I think to an extent, it was a, a spillover from from Silicon Valley, and I, I think unfortunately, what it comes down to is, is kind of like money validates anything. So when there's a lot of money being invested in startups, all of a sudden, all the media starts covering it, and people sure. start creating events, and there was this critical mass of. Um, Foreigners starting to invest in Japanese startups, Japanese startups starting to go to Silicon Valley, this sense that there was a lot of money being made in startups that people were missing out. And then there was this big push into uh, innovation in Japan. Now, that there was a long time coming. I, I think there's been things like in the last four or five years, there's been this tremendous infrastructure built up of co-working spaces and seed and series A investment funds. And, um, but before that, you know, starting in the early two thousands, we saw this, this exodus of really qualified software engineers leaving large corporations and setting up their own companies. And that that hadn't really happened before. And I think it was because the cost of creating a company and creating software had dropped so much. Now, for the first four or five years, most of these companies were doing contract software. They were subcontractors, you know, three or four layers down for normal Japanese firms. But with the advent of cloud computing... I think that, if anything, it was cloud computing that really lit the fire under Japanese uh, software startups. Because now these companies could start these side projects and have very, you know, have global distribution. And once that started happening, investors started investing, the, the ecosystem started developing. So Fukuoka, for example, um, which I think is probably the healthiest startup ecosystem in Japan, although it's it's one of the it's not that big, but the ecosystem itself is is really um, positive. They started out. I mean, ten years ago, there were lots of independent software companies, but they weren't making their own products, and now um, the vast majority of them are, and it's been kind of this global reach how cloud computing dropped the barriers to entry for software startups. I mean, this is true of software startups around the world, but I think it was this pent-up, not a pent-up demand, but this pent-up supply of creativity and software engineering talent that had been here in Japan and just needed an outlet. Right, so here's here's the big question for me, right? I'm just trying to remember who the biggest, like what's the most paradigm-changing Japanese startup over the last five years, right? And I know, or at least I think I know, I mean, I've actually been in Fukuoka. And I think you know that like Graham and I, my partner and I on our podcast, we went to Fukuoka to find out like what was making it a great startup city. 
you know, we wanted to go meet Takashima-san and we met some of the mm-hmm. founders down there, which were, as you said, were amazing. And they're starting to build, I would say, a pretty incredible ecosystem there. I'm trying to remember, like, who, for me, right, you need a few components to have a really great ecosystem. Let's just talk about the rest of Japan. Like, who are the big venture capitalists, the really big ones that are building and investing in multiple companies in, in all of Japan? And then who are, you know, the great sort of seed stage investors? And what are the big companies that are coming out of Japan that, okay. that are then going to go that, that's, global? That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Um, okay, I, well, let, let's start. I'm really curious. Yeah, well, well, let's take a look at the how things are in, in, in venture capital here. So until, wow, until 2000, but really, well, until the dot-com boom, there really wasn't seed capital available. I mean, no. it was it was debt financed. You would borrow money, um, sign your name, yeah. you know, put up your own assets as collateral, and that's how you'd bootstrap a company. Yeah, and to be fair, uh, when I like when I funded Imahima in 1998 and 1999, one of the guys that funded it was in Boston, and the other one was in London. Yeah, yep. And that was that and, was angel that was angel investing. But sorry, I interrupted yep. you. No, no, that's quite all right. And so what happened? There, like 2000, there was non-traditional VC, but it was crowded into a few like oversized deals that everyone was in. So it was a lot of money being poured into a very small number of companies. Now, kind of growth capital, you know, once you've got a company that's got, you know, five or six years of operating experience, it's growing at a steady rate and you can model it financially, whether it's in Japan or the U.S., there's almost infinite funds available at that stage because it's very low risk, right? I mean, it's been de-risk, but who, so who are the Japanese players in that space? In that space, it's overwhelmingly corporate VC. Yeah, that's what Um, it feels like. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's, you know, Jafco is the biz- biggest, right, right, right. but a lot of, you know, all the banks have their VC arms. Yeah, MUFJ, that's a big one. Yep. Um, now, the seed stage stuff is new, and it started out with uh, companies like uh, Digital Garage, right. uh, Samurai Incubate, yep. doing, you know, writing $50,000 checks to lots and lots and lots of startups. And that's a very easy model to imitate, and lots of people have, and including some of the corporate VCs. So in Japan, that very early stage seed funding is very easy to get, and growth capital is real easy to get. However, there's this series A, B, the terms are used so differently now, it's hard to know. But let's say like if you need to raise, at one point, let's say you need to raise about $2 million to $5 million dollars. So that's a big enough check that, you know, your partner's going to ask you about that. You're going to have to justify that decision. And it's not, the company's not big enough yet that it's got a track record. So you've got to make like a gut decision. And that's. Tim, did I lose you? Shaped. You've got lots of seed capital available. You've got lots of, you know, um, growth mezzanine capital available, but very little of that. Well, I don't know, very little, but it's very hard to raise that, you know, one to five million dollar round. Yeah, I feel like some of those companies are just going to mothers. It almost seems well, to me that's, like that's like what's a, happening. Do you know what I mean? Like it almost I seems like an IPO feels like 
you know, it's not like when Airbnb does an IPO. It, it just feels like, you know, there's a mother's listing possible because the, the barriers to entry for mothers are just low and that companies can do an IPO. But it just yeah, feels like uh, a different animal to me. It feels like a funding round as opposed to going public. What is, in fact, um, James Reine, who runs 500 startups here, he, he was saying that uh, an IPO in Japan is at a Series B in America. I think it's a Series A, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a shame. I, I, I think a lot of Japanese companies go IPO way too early. They've got a lot of growth left in them. Yeah. Some of it is because it's hard to raise capital, but some of it, I think, is just cultural. Um, Japanese investors will push companies to a early safe exit rather than the U.S. style, which is always, you know, double down and roll the dice again. Right? Yeah. And stay private as long as possible, right? Until you're yeah. huge. I mean, look at Uber's. Uber would have been a public company if it, if it had been started 25 years ago. Well, it's bigger than most public companies now. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about when Amazon did their IPO, it was yeah. just a natural progression. You just got to a certain sort of sales run rate and you just went public and, now companies, I think part of it is that just being a public company is such an egregious event. All the reporting and whether it's Sarbanes-Oxley in the United States or just similar laws globally, it just is really hard, I think, to run a public company, depending on where you're listed, right? Well, I've had um, one of the founders on the, the show, and I'd, I'd give his name if I could remember who, who told me this, but he, he was saying that the main reason he took his company public was that it allowed him to do business with a certain class of company. For sure. In Japan, for sure, right? Yeah. And so in Japan, it was purely a status thing. He didn't need to raise – he didn't need to raise revenue. His investors were um, minority shareholders and very long-term like strategic partners. Uh, so he he floated a very small amount, very small percentage of his company just to say we're listed and now – all these big trading houses can do business with us. Right, right. And that's the whole point, right, is that they don't want to do business with, and it may even be in their business charter or something, but they don't want to do business with a private company, because, particularly a small one in a startup, because if something goes wrong, yeah, it's just now, a problem. I, that is something that's starting to change. And I mean, I've, I've really noticed a difference from, like, my first company back in 1998, if I tried to do business with a large company, you'd almost always get pushed down through three or four levels of subcontractors. But now um, most large companies are proactively reaching out to startups. They want to do business with them. Um, They're they're bad at it. (laughs) <laughs> but but <laughs> but but they're trying, right. and and that's that's progress. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a reverse cachet in a way, right? It's like, hey, I was dealing with those guys at, uh, you know, at this startup company, and it just makes them seem cooler, I guess, at some level. Well, that's in fact that that's one of the things I tell. The, the one piece of advice I, I tell all foreign startups that are coming into Japan is it is really easy to get meetings and and sign strategic partnerships and strategic alliance agreements because all of these companies want to be seen as working with startups. Right. But unless there's financial commitments, nothing's going to happen. You'll you'll end up as a bullet point on someone's quarterly, you know, PowerPoint to his boss. Um so it, it's yeah, it, it, it's still hard to get the deal done, but right now at least they're proactively reaching out and they, they want to work with startups, and, and they do. You know, there, there's plenty of um, 
large companies that are working with Japanese startups. But there's a big impedance mismatch between the way startups do business and the way enterprises do business. Yeah, for sure. So, and what kind of companies do you see? So, you're you're working part of disrupting Japan's mandate is to help startup companies come into the Japanese market, right? Well, to be honest, disrupting Japan is just a podcast. It's something like my advertisers are, you know. I, I still have a few sponsors, but it's really something I do just because I love doing it. Right. And I, I know that I, feeling. So I, I've got no particular business connected directly to disrupting Japan. Sorry, my mistake. So I, I mean, I do do some consulting for market entry um, and with some of the the energy focused startups with with uh, Tokyo Denryoku. But it, it's not disrupting Japan is just kind of its its own thing. What is it like, though? So you're taking tech companies, like market entry in Japan has always been sort of this fascinating space for me, right? Yeah. Um, it doesn't, it never seemed to me that Japanese people actually did that really well, if that makes a lot of sense. In other words, they were much more interested in building a big domestic business, but when it came time to helping people, like they should have a deep understanding of what it takes to survive and enter Japan. But it seems like most of that business gets done by foreigners. I'd say it's... You know, it, Fifty fifty. There yeah. there are yeah, there are plenty of Japanese who are very good at it. Um where foreign companies get themselves into trouble is mm. there there's a certain type of uh resume that recruiters love to present to foreign companies coming into Japan. So mm. they'll almost always give them the resume of someone who's uh, went to a university in the US or Europe, he's right. mid thirties, so he won't cost them too much, he's mid level management preferably sales at like Microsoft or Oracle or Google or something. And the senior VP of global sales loves the guy and he'll get into the role and he'll just be, you know, he'll be a team player and he'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll execute now. Tell me what to do. But the fact is when you come into, well, really any market, but especially a market as alien as Japan for a U.S. or European company, you've got to be thinking like a startup again. You know, um, your product is what it is, but a lot of time you need to go out there and you need to find what the market finds most attractive about your product. Um, to give an ex a specific example, uh, I was the Japan country manager of a company called Engine Yard. It was a um, right. platform-as-a-service firm. And in San Francisco, well, I should say in the U.S., the big selling point was the speed at which uh, this platform allowed development to proceed. And it, it was significantly sped up. They had data to back that up. And... That's what got the U.S. companies excited. Japanese companies couldn't care less. Um, so we went through it again and we found out, you know, we tried a different pitches and we found out that um, we also had this really minor offering that most people in the U.S. weren't interested in, but where we would provide um, not we would provide human monitoring so that we would do a run list and restart your servers and, you know, whatever needed to be done rather than just sending you an alert. So the system ran better. It had a higher level of stability. And that was of huge interest. And so that's what we led with. Right. You know, same product, but if you come in and just say, okay, we're going to translate the PowerPoint and translate the website and, and expect to sell, then usually that doesn't work. 
if that's going to work, usually your Japanese customers have already found you and are pulling you into the market. Right. They've already come out and they've, they've been seeking you out from the beginning rather than you coming in and trying to sell them a product that they didn't know existed. Right, right. So you, you, if, if that's the case, you probably already have an existing book of business in Japan, which is a wonderful way to be entering the market. For sure. <laughs> and what do you, so what do you see? You come out of, you know, running a software division or running a software business at Zurich. So you've been in, you know, we never called it this, but it's really fintech, right, from the get-go. Do you see, do you still see a lot of opportunities in fintech in Japan? In other words, is it similar to other markets? And I guess the other question is, we see a lot of news coming out of Japan about acceptance of, you know, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, the blockchain and stuff like that in a way that we don't see in some of the other countries in Asia. And I'm wondering if you have a view on where that's going and how companies in Japan are going to take advantage of that. I think the FSA, uh, the financial services agency here in Japan, right. is actually really quite progressive in a lot of ways. So um, it seems, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are really surprised at this, but they are putting pressure on the banks to open up and have uh, to support APIs so startups can work with them. Um, they've approved these cryptocurrency exchanges. They've got a very hands-off um, approach to regulation as long as things are, are small and manageable. Right. That said, I think that fintech in general, if you look at the problems being solved, um, most fintech startups that get funded in the U.S. or Japan, they're, they're not really solving a big problem. Um, however, they're understandable and, and the people who work in finance and who have VC money understand these problems and understand the solutions. So I think they tend to get overfunded. But I, I think the most exciting innovation in fintech is going to come from places like Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, where you've got huge communities of unbanked right. citizens. And people genuinely have to innovate and come up with new inexpensive products to serve this massive existing need. And I think those products will be truly innovative, and those products will be able to be brought back to the U.S. to serve the whatever percentage is. It's like 12% or something of the U.S. population that's unbanked. Right. But I mean, if you – and this is one of the beautiful things about, as you said, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, with most people not having access to a bank account, they're using – they're now using their mobile phones. And whether it's cryptocurrency or micropayments or microloans – it's opening up an entire new world of finance, which then leads them to an entire new world of potentially business st starting and startups as well. Yeah, I and, think so too. Yeah, and I mean, and I, I, I just think the stuff that's happening there is more exciting than what I see ha see happening in in the U.S. or Japan. It's not that there's not good innovation here. There, there's plenty of interesting fintech startups that are making good business for themselves. But if you're if you're looking for you know, change the world moonshot type technology, I think it's going to come out of of um, emerging markets because they're the ones with the biggest problems to solve. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Like, I think it's just going to, it's an outgrowth of the necessity, right? You, if I look at the big fintech companies in the United States, they're really just taking an existing infrastructure and just sort of modernizing the technology around it. And whether that's, you know, payments through companies like Stripe or you know, what's that new company that Max Levchin's working on where you can pay things sort of, it's almost like a layaway program 
right. for slightly richer people um, and for people that all, you know can't afford mattresses and stuff like that. But again, they're just, they're just solving a problem that, that everybody already knows exists. And I don't see that being like a global paradigm changing um, business. But like you said, in places in Africa where people haven't had a way to just store value anywhere and now they can store it on on a cheap Android mobile phone. Wow, that's a really big difference because now people can actually pull themselves out of poverty. And you're talking about a massive amount of people. And again, it's not just there. It's in China as well. Um, and, and also fintech more generally, some of the um, both in the markets in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, even providing insurance products like yep. uh, crop insurance has been transformative so I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's not as as sexy and it's certainly not as well financed as some of the fintech and cryptocurrency uh, companies in in Asia or the U.S. But I think long term, there's going to be more innovation and more exciting stuff coming out of, of those areas. Yeah, I mean, I and I think crypto is going to play actually a big role in the development of micropayments, microloans, and as you said, the insurance products, because this the decentralized nature of the crypto product, and I'm not talking just about the money that's associated with it, so the Bitcoin, mm -hmm. Ethereum, and all that other stuff, but just the platforms themselves that allow a little bit of decentralization. It's going to mean that no one particular entity is going to have control, and that's good and bad, right? But I do believe that that's going to lead to sort of groundbreaking developments. And that gets back, that gets me back to something we were addressing earlier again just something that's super interesting to me as a guy and and people who listen to this podcast know this and i mention it often you know i moved to tokyo in 1990 i went to dosha in 1985 and 1986 and you know i left in 2011 so i have a very long history there and i just keep looking and trying to figure out with all the talent there you know besides softbank right and softbank is a just completely different animal and it always has been. Masayoshi Son and his team, they're just, these are not normal mm. people, right? Um, right. But, but, and I'm not so enamored of this big fun that they run, like whatever. But the man as, a, as, a, as an individual has just been insanely amazing since, you know, he started investing in Yahoo 20 years ago. <sighs> Oh, I, I agree. I mean, there, there's always at any one time on the planet, there's like 10 businessmen of that acumen, like Richard Branson is another one. I mean, there, there's just a handful of guys that are brilliant at what they do. Yeah. And, I, and he's look, one of them. Yeah. And Mio Chiken, who's his right hand man mm. as well. Like these guys are amazing. But I'm just struggling to understand, like, with all the talent there, what's the next big thing that's going to come out of Japan? Right? That's what I look at. When I try to figure out, you know, I'm a startup guy as well, right? And I'm trying to look at you know, I see all the funding opportunities, the big banks, the corporate venture capital. Like I said, I've been to Fukuoka. I know the guys at B-Dash. I know East Ventures is a big deal. I mean, DNA runs their own, the Incubate Fund. I know um, Akaura-san and Homa-san and all these guys. I'm just, what's the next thing, right? So DNA was one of the original, you know, startup companies. Gree was as well. But what's next, do you think? Like, you're, you're there. Like, what are you seeing? What I, 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 I think the biggest change, and again, like transformative change, there, there's plenty of amazing startup companies in Japan. Um, but I think in terms of like moving the needle economically, I, I, I've written about this in the past. Um, I've given a couple of presentations on it. But I, I think that a lot of the innovation over the next 10, 20 years in Japan is not going to be coming from the startups. It's going to be coming from these small, mid-sized manufacturing companies who, who have spent um, the last 
40, 50 years being part of some Keidetsu supply chain right. and who now find themselves cut off and having to fend for themselves. Now, a lot of these, co- these companies are going overseas and becoming part of other people's supply chain. So, for example, the iPhone's uh, supply chain after China, Japan has the most companies that are part of that supply chain. Sure. And most some, some of them are really large, but most of them are these small, mid-sized manufacturers but I think some percentage of those, some small percentage of those mid-sized manufacturers are going to take these techniques, these startup techniques, and learn to productize and, and learn to create products and to market internationally. Because if you've got a company that's, you know, 100 people, 150 people, it's not that big. Nope. You know, a charismatic leader can turn that company around. And I think just when you look at the macro numbers – the investments in startups, it's its important. There's a lot of innovation and creativity coming out of it, but it's just a, too tiny a fraction of the total uh, GNP in Japan, whereas uh, half the employment and half the GNP is coming out of these mid-sized companies. So I think that's, that's going to be a driver of innovation. I think Japan is going to have a fundamentally different model of innovation than we see coming out of the U.S. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. And I think you make a really good point about these SMEs, right? I mean, and most of, some of these companies are actually public companies. Most of them are private companies. And I wonder, as from an investment standpoint, are these investable companies, right? You're still talking about, I would say, third generation now, but maybe end of second, beginning of third generation owners of these companies, and if they want to grow overseas, like, do they have enough capital to be able to do that? And if they don't, does that turn those into sort of private equity deals? You know what I mean? In other words, I'm not sure not what structure. Right? Yeah, I'm not sure what structure it'll take. Um, I think one good example of a company like this structurally was uh, is Seven Dreamers. What's that? Um, there, it was a company spun out of a family-owned business. Um, the third generation, the son or the grandson of the founder, um, instead of simply taking over the reins of the family business, wanted to do something more creative. He took the technology and they spun it out into a new business and then they funded that. So the structure, they might structure it as corporate spinouts. They might structure it as uh, private equity. Um, Japanese, most of these companies are like family held and even if they're public, you know, the yeah, shares floated or, you know, it's tiny, a tiny, tiny, it's, yeah. So culturally in Japan, there's a real sense of not wanting to give up that control right? that might play into it. So it might be that, you know, the growth is slower. Um, but I, I, I think it's going to look, it's going to be a uniquely Japanese model. Um, and I don't think... Well, we'll we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I'm not sure. Structurally, either. it could go any way, but yeah, it's tough to invest in them. Um, though, I guess I guess the best approach would be to you know to watch closely, he, see who's successful at productizing. Um, but it'll have such a different structure than traditional startup investment, where you know you've got people who look for seed. The, these it, it'll it'll be closer to private equity, I would guess. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. And even if they do spin it out, you know, there's going to be a, the bulk of the funding is going to come from the parent company. So right. it won't really be a seed round per se. 
Yeah, and, those, and that seed round is going to end up being larger if that company has any sort of existing business because they have access to capital, I would think. You know, right. we spent that, years... That's the, that's the kind of deal corporate VC in Japan yeah. just love. <laughs> so what do you think, right? I mean, like I said, Graham and I were in Fukuoka. We talked to some of the founders down there. We went to Startup City. I know it's kind of going back to an earlier conversation, but... Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think that one of the things that Startup City Fukuoka is doing is they're having four-year visas for foreigners. And this is a big deal. Even when I was at Morgan Stanley, you know, the first year or so that I was there had a three-year visa, but it was a year, year by year after that. And, you know, it was 20 years of year by year. Yeah. Right. So Takashima-san is doing some really interesting stuff down there. And I want to go back and like find out what your view is on that and like how big you think it gets you know Fukuoka actually ends up being a fabulous place to live I spent a ton of time in Kyushu and you know I actually know Hakata really well and yeah it's a wonderful place to live yeah. it's, it's a great town I, I think it's important to kind of separate what what made Fukuoka great what brought it to the point where it is now and what path it might walk in the future because I think those are very different things so I, I think the reason that Fukuoka, the ecosystem developed as well as it did mm-hmm. is because the government was so hands-off. They they didn't, traditionally, they didn't really have any money. Right. And so in all of Japan, Fukuoka is really the only place where the entrepreneurial ecosystem, the, the startup community is really led by founders. In Tokyo, the VCs have way too much sway over it. Way in Osaka. Yeah. And in Osaka, it's kind of the government pushing things along. And it, it's great that they're doing it because no one else is, but it's the government leading right now. Yeah. I don't know but, anything about the Osaka scene at all. Is is there a is there a sort of genuine tech startup ecosystem there? Well, I think the problem in Osaka, there are a lot of good companies that come from Osaka. Mm. But, but the way I explain it is like Fukuoka startups, when they become bigger and start getting successful, they open a sales office in Tokyo. Yeah, fair enough. Osaka startups, when they get bigger and successful, move to Tokyo. Right. <laughs> yeah, because there's no benefit. I mean, living in Osaka is just a smaller version of Tokyo. And I know Kansai is different than, you know, Tokyo. I, I get that. Yeah, but that, that community, that sense of community is, is so important. Mm. And I, I think the fact that in Fukuoka, the government didn't have the money. And basically, they if the business leaders got together and said, oh, well, we want to have this event to promote Ruby on Rails, the government would say, um, okay, that's great. We'll let you use this public hall for free. And the mayor will show up and give a speech saying how important startups are. Right. And that's perfect. That's exactly what government should do. Just shine a spotlight on it, get some attention. But you know, let the let the founders move forward at their own pace. So, if, so that's a great. That's actually a great segue into another question. That is, do you watch what goes on in Singapore? Um, yeah, in other I words, do. I'm, a, I'm there a couple of times. I'm there like once or twice a year, but I'm I'm certainly not an expert in what's going on there. Um, I, I think the government government model, right? Yeah, I, I at first when they started doing this, oh gosh, four or five years ago, you just. Pouring so much government money into startups, I was kind of thinking, well, this isn't going to end well. This is just going to blow a bubble. But, you know, they're managing it a whole lot better than I or anyone else I think imagined they would. So, you know, good luck to them. Yeah, I mean, I give Singapore a lot of credit, but I do think, like you said, well, actually, I'll I'll put those words into my mouth, right? I think that (laughs) there is, um, 
<laughs> and that's a, as a favor to you because I don't like when people do it to me and you didn't really say it. So it's not really fair. But what I believe strongly is that a lot of the programs where they're subsidizing investments means that a lot of companies don't get invested, right? To a certain extent to me, you know, Fukuoka, what makes it great is that like the kids down there really have to hustle to get started. Yeah. They really yeah, do. Very because, much so. And this is why I want to be, and you know, Graham and I talk about this a lot. This is why I want, we want to be big supporters of it because, you know, the startups that we met there, you know, whether they're Japanese or they're, you know, French or English or whomever, you know, they've had to kick a little butt to just get noticed, get funded, and then to grow. And I like that attitude, right? So if for $75,000 investment, someone got to feel like they invested 550000 which was part of the NRF program in Singapore, it just feels like a whole bunch of companies, there's too much money and a whole bunch of companies are going to yeah. get funded that shouldn't. And maybe it's the opposite in Japan where too few companies get funded. And I also think, and I'd love to know your opinion on this too, just as a longtime person in Japan. You know, we hear all this chatter about it's easy to fail in America because of the bankruptcy laws and, you know, all this other noise around that. But what is that like? Has that changed in Japan at all where like a founder just says, you know what, it didn't work. And unlike you, they don't give up the money before they get it, but they actually, you know, they go out, they take funding and stuff like that. If it doesn't work, is it still stigmatized or is it okay now? No, it's far from okay. Um, although I'll, I'll say in the U.S., it, it's also far from okay. Agreed. I mean, everyone talks a big yeah, yeah, game yeah. about how, you know, fail fast, fail forward, sure. but in and out. It sucks. It's hard. It is. Um, and it, it does carry, you know, some degree of stigma um, everywhere. But I, I think in Japan, it, it's it's a long way from being solved, Um I, I think that newer companies and startup companies are very willing to hire people from failed startups. Um, traditional companies, no, but I don't think it has to do with the failure or the startup so much as just traditional companies don't recruit mid-management. You right. know, they, they recruit at the beginning. Yeah. But there, there still really is a stigma. Um Friends of mine who've been CEOs of failed startups have universally told me that it's it's difficult to find a job afterwards. Really? Yeah. Uh, and the, the usual pattern <laughs> seems to be that they would get an interview at a, a Japan office of a foreign company. Right. Um, and then as soon as they got bounced to like the HR department, it'd be like, oh, no, no, we don't think this is right. <laughs> you're not a you're not a good fit for this company. Yeah, that's terrible. So it was the traditional HR departments I was doing. So it's it's better than it's far better than it used to be. But I think Japan has a long way to go before, um, but before really embracing like failure as a learning experience. Right, as, and that it's like an okay thing. We just wipe the slate clean and then let's just move on. Yeah. And there are good and bad to that as well, right? And I agree with you too, I think, and that is, you know, we talk about how easy it is in the United States, but have you ever been bankrupt? And that's a rhetorical question, right? Like it, that's hard work as well. I think it is hard work everywhere. There's just slightly better acceptance in some places than in others. Yeah, yeah. So this is a slightly sort of gear shifting question, but where were you in March of 2011? I mean, you wrote about it in your biography. Mm. You're like, okay, a whole bunch of stuff changed. And I know a whole bunch of things changed for me. You can tell by the dates that I left, right? I left on December 26th, 2011, and that's not an accident, right. right? So I'm just curious, like, I can tell you where I was, New Otani Garden Court, you know, and if, you, if you're familiar with the stock market, you know, at 247, there was an earthquake. That's 13 minutes before the market closes. That's some of the, like, most active time. It was just a oh, really yeah, yeah. interesting day. 
Well, I mean, for me, I was I was walking down a hallway at Zurich Financial, right, and got tossed from one side of the hallway to the other. But you did that, right? And I don't think most people really appreciate like how violent it was in Tokyo. So no buildings fell down. So there was nothing to sort of. You know what I mean? There were no fires. There were no buildings. Amazing building codes in Japan. I yeah. Mean, just but, astounding. But you know what I mean? And I'm not like, I'm happy that nobody died, but I don't think people really understand. It, it was harrowing and sure in Sendai and Fukushima was way worse. Full yeah, stop, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's one of those things that until you've been through it, you can't, you, you can't really verbalize it well. And it, it's, you can show people videos of things shaking, but yeah, until you, until you actually go through an earthquake of that magnitude, it's yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard to describe. But what was, like, maybe in a way for me it's a little bit cathartic, right? But I'm curious, like, what your feeling was that afternoon. You know, we were, you know, we we left our building. We were standing in Kyocho Park, right? And it was just, the ground was moving. It was really violent. And, you know, we went back to work on Monday like nothing happened. And to be fair, you know, it's I was really scared. <laughs> and most people don't talk about it, but you're still there. Yeah, I, I like, think it was. Is there a mentality change or, like, what happened? What is it like now? Do people still talk about it? Yeah, I, I think that um, the earthquake kind of showed the the best and the worst of, of Japanese society. I, I think the hours and days following that earthquake was just astounding. Um, the way the country came together and, um, you know, I, I, I wrote just about, you know, that, that day – Five million people calmly walked home out of Tokyo. Yeah, I saw it. I mean, and, and it was and just I, yeah, no, I mean, nowhere was, else in the world would that have happened. No, no. And I was <laughs> giving people instructions. Literally, people were like, "Which yeah, yeah, way is you know, <laughs> which way do I walk?" Because nobody knew, right? If you're riding a train every day in in and out, right? It's like you know, which how do I get to the countryside? It's like you know, go down Meiji Dori and make a left is not going to work. Exactly. I ended up on a on a corner for about twenty minutes giving directions. I mean, I used to have a motorcycle, so I know the surface streets, and it was yeah, same here. It, it was odd. Um, <laughs> where where were you living? But, uh, I that was when I was living in Ebisu. Got it. Okay, because I was in Aoyama. Anyway, yeah. So it was for me. It was like uh, I don't know, like an hour's walk home. No big deal. But you know, some of these people walked home for like six hours. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, some of the some of the stuff, you know, luckily in, in a way, I say luckily, but it's a weird word, right? It was a Friday afternoon. So nobody had to come to work the next day, but it was weird. People literally walked what's an hour commute by train. They walked home. And I remember sitting in a restaurant that night having dinner just thinking, and there were like waves and waves of people. It was just like watching ants walking home, right? Because they had cell phones and stuff that were lit up. It was just, it was surreal in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but then, like I say, once it, it was amazing how much, I mean, the support those days and the few days after and the few months after where the government just said, okay, the, the nuclear power plants are offline, right. everyone, let's try to conserve energy. And they dropped, the nation dropped its energy use by like 20%. Sure. I mean, they stopped air, condi- not air conditioning, but yeah, they stopped heating places. They stopped air conditioning things over the summer. It was really strange, actually. Yeah, well, just because everyone was like, we want to pitch in and make this work. Um, yeah. I, I think, though, the sad thing is as that enthusiasm and the news cycle moved away from it, you know, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in Fukushima. And, 
you know, uh, attention's kind of drifted away from it, and that's that's a shame. Are you familiar with a man named Carl Sundberg? No, I don't believe I am. Yeah, so Carl was the guy that I worked with at um, at Morgan Stanley, and he was you know deeply involved in technology. But he was an ASIJ kid, if I remember correctly. So Carl, if I get that wrong, please forgive me. But just like a long term Japan guy, and like one of the most just like one of the hardest working sort of committed to Japan things. He's moved, I believe to Fukushima and building businesses. I, I think one of the things he was doing was building a data center, but just a whole bunch of tech moving it up there so that, you know, trying to rebuild and help the community there as well. And, um, that's and then, fantastic. Yeah. And then this, do you know the SafeCast guys? Yeah, of course they've been on the show. Okay. So I, I was in actually Peter Franken's office and I talked to what's his name, Sean Bonner as well. They've been on my show too. I just, I just think what those guys are doing is, just amazing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to none of their own benefit, to be fair, right? But it's this type of stuff that I like to highlight because, like you said, once the news cycle dies down, nobody pays attention to it anymore. And I still think there's a lot of stuff that's happening there that uh, that people should talk about. And that I know that's outside sort of the startup realm, but even so, you know, SafeCast itself started from nothing and they've built it into a really interesting sort of concept. I don't want to call it a business because they're not making any money from it, which is neat. Um, but just the tools that they're building, the data sets that they're building and stuff, I think are really interesting. Yeah, I, I think their approach on citizen science is very important. Um, you know, it, it's kind of the relationship between uh, governments and citizens in terms of, uh, of science is kind of flipped, where before yeah. it used to be that only governments could afford to deploy uh, pollution monitoring and weather monitoring stations but now the technology is so cheap the government can't afford to deploy two million pollution sensors right but a community working together and everyone putting one up on their house oh well that's affordable right so um yeah i think the future is going to look very different that way i love what the guys at safecast are doing yeah so do i and i try to promote them at, at any opportunity because i think that you know, it's so selfless as well, right? They're spending a lot of time, you know, building things and they're not making a ton of money, if any money from it. And I just like to talk covering costs. I just like to talk about it. Anyway, just the last thing, do you invest in companies as well? I I invest, but I don't consider myself an investor. Yeah, fair um, enough. I mean, but you what's the same way you can you can bake a batch of cookies that doesn't make you a baker? Yeah, for sure. And to be fair, I can't bake at all. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the analogy works perfectly for me. But like, so you... I, I invest in companies that um, I, I'm friends with. I know the founders closely, or there's some right. very specific value I can add. But I, I, I don't generally go out and hear pitches or anything like that. I was just curious. Yeah, really curious. Look, th- I mean, this conversation has been really fascinating for me. I mean that really seriously. Like, because in my mind, I was just trying to sort of put normal startup ecosystem structure around what's going on in Japan. And, you know, I haven't lived there for six years, so I don't really know. But I think what you're saying is that it's not developing the same way. And at least the expectation is that it won't develop the same way at all. But it doesn't mean there aren't opportunities there either. And I like this whole concept of, you know, sort of old line SMEs then spinning out businesses that become sort of separate entities. I hadn't thought about it at all. I, I really think, and I'm, I'm the minority, and I'm a minority in this opinion for Fair sure. Enough. But I, I think that um, there, there's plenty of interesting software companies and plenty of interesting investments here in Japan. But I, I think that this SME or the, the mid-sized companies 
just the dynamics of the Japanese market is very different, different history, different state than the U.S. So I, I think it's natural that it will evolve differently. Yeah, I mean, look, I, and I think there's a big, um, I don't want to call it health tech, but, you know, Japan is one of the oldest populations in the world and also one of the oldest, healthiest populations in the world, too. So it's always interesting to me to see how that stuff plays out. You know, SMS was a listed company that actually ended up doing really well, which is started by a guy who now lives in Singapore. Um, but I, I think there's a massive opportunity there, which we didn't have an, an opportunity to talk about. Maybe we can do that next time. But you're right. Just structurally, it's very different, remains very different. And even, you know, with the large pool of capital, which we've been talking about for decades that remains in the postal savings or, you know, <laughs> entity, it's just nothing's going to happen to it, it seems to me. Like that could be the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world as opposed to what's going on in Norges Bank where, you know, a country of five and a half million people have a trillion dollars essentially. Japan's kind of the same way, but it doesn't seem like the economic impact is going to be the same. Yeah, it, it's... Um, and, and that's not a question. That's just a comment for me because we used to hear no, from I, years, I agree totally. I, I think it's it's widespread beyond the postal saving system. Um, that's just the thing that Large Japanese know. companies are sitting on a, a ton of cash ton. that they're terrified to deploy. Correct. <laughs> but it have been for decades, right? I mean, I don't think it's a big surprise to anybody. It's just interesting to me that that's never going to change. Because it could, because it, it, it could. Help. I don't think it'll change in the short term. I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any force that'll force them to change in the short term. But yeah. I, I, I think if it's, if it can be de-risked enough, um, I, I think it will change. And the thing with change in Japan is when it comes, it happens incredibly fast. Sure. And and Japanese industry and society can take a very long time deciding to change and getting ready to change and putting the pieces in place to change. but when it happens it happens fast yeah i mean i don't it's i don't want to make an equivalency but i think someone once said like it takes a really long time to go bankrupt and then, and then it takes no time at all <laughs> and i think it's kind of like the same thing although i don't think japan's going to go bankrupt because again one of the things that someone said a while ago was japan got old japan got rich before it got old right Right. And there are some countries out there that are getting old before they get rich. That's a bigger problem. I don't think Japan has a funding problem, and it's a very healthy country too. So we'll just see what happens. But you've given me a great insight, actually, into how it's just so different. And and I should know, right? But even just being out of the country for a few years, like like I said, this whole concept of these SMEs spinning stuff out is just really interesting to me. I need well, to do some more thinking about this. We'll see how that plays out. Yeah, but, but it's uh, a I've idea, enjoyed our right? conversation as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Japan's a unique place. Yeah, and I don't think that's going to change. <laughs> that's an, even an okay thing to say. Anyway, look, I really appreciate your time, Tim. Well, thanks for having me on. And can you just tell, like, just for people that are listening, and it's my pleasure, but for people that are listening, what's the best way to reach you, to follow you, all that kind of stuff, all that kind of good social stuff? Easiest way to find me is uh, Disrupting Japan, disruptingjapan.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at, at Timothy, Timothy, T-I-M-O-T-H-3-Y. T-I-M-O-T-H-3-Y. 3-Y. Wow. It's okay. pronounced Timothy. It's a, it's a silent three. <laughs> okay. I'm going to try to find that <laughs> when I hang up. Anyway, this is Michael Waits, Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I want to thank Tim Romero. Tim, this has really been awesome. It's my pleasure. Cheers.